Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. Now they can hear me at home. Very good. As I start this final section of chapter one, I want to begin where we ended last week. I gave an invitation uh, at the end of the sermon last week to remember that God does not condemn weak people who are struggling but instead invites them to go deeper into his love and find the joy that is promised because indeed he does love us. To confess our sins one to another, as James prescribes in chapter number 5, or simply to confess your own sins before the Lord, is not about finding out how bad we are, but instead how good God is. And today's sermon is a continuation of that invitation, an invitation for us to take our struggles as we encounter these various kinds of trials and allow God to show us how good he is, how good he is to sinners like us. And the bridge uh, from last week to this week is verse 16, that we are not deceived. And once again, family orientation is important to understanding this letter, which is why James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Brethren, there is not a a, a male-only distinction. He wants the church at large to not live with deception as they encounter the trials that they are encountering, but instead to live with the wisdom that God is generously pouring down. And as their faith 
engages the generosity of God and his wisdom, they are able to read their trials rightly. And as a family, their faith is able to flourish, which is why James keeps this family language in front of us. Loving God rightly, loving one another rightly, must mean that we do not live in deception, but in the wisdom of God shed abroad on our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So you want to love God, you want to love one another, we encounter a variety of trials, and then we need wisdom to read those trials rightly so that we as a family are not deceived about what they mean. One of the truly wonderful things wisdom produces, which is why we're reading Proverbs in our congregational reading, and why Christian ethics matter, Sermon on the Mount. One of the things that wisdom produces is the ability to discern that God is giving to the church good things. Now those good things sometimes are wrapped in trials. They're wrapped in things that appear not to be so good. But wisdom reveals that not only are they good, but they are perfect, and that they come down from the Father of lights. Verse 17. So you move from don't be deceived to, verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of of lights. Wisdom then reveals what we can't discern about the good gifts given, even when those good gifts are given in the form of trials. If you're reading the commentary, uh, commentary by Dr. Motier, I would encourage you to primarily read the section that has to deal with the sermon that is going to be preached. So in other words, look at your bulletin and then you'll see what next week's sermon about. Focus in, in his commentary, on next week's section. That's a little late to do that today. Don't pull it up. Don't pull out your book. I'm going to give you a quote, though, from his thinking on this section. Dr. Mortier has this to say. And when I read it, I remember when I read it, I, I was really helped. And I, I reread it again this week. Listen to what he says. In its character... Everything God gives is good. And in giving, he is exactly appropriate to what is required. His gifts are perfect. Our need then is the objective. His gift is that which exactly meets it. So God in his character gives only that which is good, and in giving gives what is appropriate to the need, makes it perfect. Our need to understand trials and the challenges of faith is the objective that meets, right, that these gifts meet. Now, as many of us know, a key to gift giving is whether the gift is appropriate to the recipient, right? Is the gift you're giving appropriate to the one who's receiving it? And we struggle at times with our 
gift giving, but we find uh, encouragement and relief to know that our Father in heaven never struggles with gift giving. He never doubts the gift he gave. He doesn't worry, will they like it? For he knows it is exactly what they need. It perfectly meets the need simply because he gave it out of his goodness and he loves to give. And we might add this about the gift that he gives. A gift may be given that is entirely appropriate for the need, but the recipient either lacks the wisdom to understand it or is blind to their need. Have you, have you, right? We've all faced this. I mean, just think of the many kinds of gifts that we give in time or money or talent, whatever it is. And, but when we give it, the person we're giving it to doesn't always get why they need that gift. And God knows this. And because he knows this, he uh, leads James to revealing that he is the father of lights. So in other words, uh, he is the father of lights. He not only has the wisdom, but he sees perfectly and clearly into our need. And he is willing to shine the light into our understanding so that we begin then to see how the good and perfect gift he is giving is appropriate to meet the need that we have. And if you lack wisdom, what are you to do? ask. And if you ask, what is the promise? How does God give to us? Generously. And as he gives generously, our faith engages his generosity and joy flows in so that in joy, faith growing together, we encounter the multidimensional trials as we talked this last Wednesday night. Our faith becomes complete. It becomes mature. It isn't lacking. And so if we lack wisdom to discern, ask of God. Now, from our perspective, of course, light changes things. Uh, you know, a painter, a, a master painter knows how to use shadow and light. Photographers know how to look at shadow and light. As shadows fall on our Christian experience, on our lives, we don't always see as clearly as we should. But, but we should remember that although change is the design of creation, change is not the design of the creator. We are right now slowly in the process of change from uh, summer into autumn. We drive around and we see some trees that are starting early to change. And we know, we know what is coming. But when fear grabs a hold of us, when we worry about the trials that we're facing and the challenges that we have, remember that God never changes. There are dramatic changes in the seasons, but there is no change with God, which means that he is always going to give us gifts entirely appropriate to meet our needs regardless of the changes in the seasons of our own lives. And this is where trials 
primarily hit us. And the challenges come in. And we kind of, you know, lose our way and lose our footing. So, so what do we bank on that says that God not only gives good gifts, but he gives appropriate gifts and he gives them out of his wisdom? It is because when we ponder and think that the gift, the greatest gift he gave was the gift that was most appropriate to meet our need. Verse 18, for it is in the exercise of his will that he brought us forth by the word of truth. What, what did every sinner dead in their trespasses and sins need? What could they not do on their own? What could they not perform for themselves? And that is they could not give themselves the new birth. But God gave a gift appropriate to meet that need. In the exercise of his will, he brings us forth by the word of truth. And this is a point of praise and thanksgiving because we find that God, the God who is the source of all wisdom, acted in perfect wisdom towards us by giving us the greatest gift that completely met our need, and that gift is the forgiveness of sins through Jesus, the only one who could provide for it the ultimate, eternal, perfect, appropriate gift who is synonymous with the word of truth. For Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. Let that be a point of encouragement today. That this gift of Jesus, the word of truth, is a way for us then to ponder and consider and think about our trials. How could that trial be good well, we know it is good because God is good. He only gives good gifts that are good. And he gives gifts that are appropriate. And you follow the circle back around. And you land at the cross of Jesus Christ. The appropriate gift given to meet our need. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The appropriate gift and promise for us that which we need. And the work of the Holy Spirit that sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. To show us these things. Let faith grow in the soil of the gospel that proclaims God is good and everything he gives is good. This means we can be confident. We can be confident that because God possesses the wisdom to meet our greatest need and because he is willing to pour out Jesus as an offering for our sins to meet that need, that he pours out the power of Jesus in our lives, that we then can live as the first fruits among his creatures. End of verse 18. Now we need to pause for a moment and we need to reflect because we've reached a very clear vantage point. And don't you like to do that? Don't you like to, when you're climbing or you're driving, you get to a clear vantage point? Let's just stop. Let's look. Up 9N, Tongue Mountain Rage, you get to Hague, and they have that little pull off. And I'm pulling off. Why? I want to look at the lake. I don't want to have to keep darting my head over, hoping to get a glimpse of it. I want to stop. I want to look at the beauty of Lake George from that vantage point. So I stop. And here we stop. And we see the Christian life as it should be seen. 
the church in the real world. And we, we can discern out of verse number 16, 17, and 18 that there are three things that God does not want the church to be deceived about. The first is that God alone is the one who saves. It is in the exercise of his will. The second thing we can see from this vantage point is that salvation comes through Jesus Christ who is the word of truth. And the third thing that we can see is that the aim or purpose of God's will exercised towards us by Christ as the word of truth is that we would become something. Become what we are in Christ, namely a kind of first fruit among his creation. Now this imagery... James pulls it forward from Old Testament law, the law of Moses, where Israel was instructed that when the harvest came, they were to give the first portion of the harvest to the Lord as a thank offering. And also as an act of faith that believed that God would supply the remainder of the harvest to meet their need. And so James pulls this imagery forward and he does so writing to a very Jewish congregation, right? But we should be readers of the Old Testament and understanding how the law works and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we ask, well, well, what does this mean that we are the first fruits among his creations? Because, you know, as you read through James, it might be easy just to run by that and kind of assume you know what it means. But we really need to think about this. Here's what James has already told us, that God is the one who plants the seeds and brings the harvest forward. It's in the exercise of his will that a harvest comes. To reiterate the thing I just talked about, the second thing we know is that the harvest required a sacrifice of his son to redeem it. The death of Christ on the cross for sinners. But as Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians, Jesus himself is the first fruit of resurrection. If you ever wonder, will you be actually raised from the dead? And I read tonight in, in some article that some really smart scientist guy, I forget what his discipline was, but it's really like, you got to be smart, but not so smart because he says, well, life after death is impossible. Well, that's not too smart. Unless he has died and then comes back, and says, yeah, there's nothing there. <laughs> or he dies, and then he smartens up, and he comes back and goes, yeah, there's stuff there. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have to worry or wonder why. Jesus Christ, first fruit of resurrection. Bodily, exiting the grave, appearing to over 500 people at one time, and, right, to his half-brother James, who had not up to that point believed, but now he encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and he believes and he writes to us. Hope of resurrection. But we also remember that the Spirit was given us first fruit, the evidence of God's work in our life for future work that is going to be taking place. Now, all of that is true about first fruits as related in the New Testament, but I don't think that's necessarily what James is aiming towards, although I think it's good to think about those things. I think what James is aiming towards is this congregation he's writing to. 
who at Pentecost were the first fruit of the harvest that would come over time until the return of Jesus, until the harvest is complete. And just like faith was needed by the harvester to say, well, if we give this portion to the Lord, are we going to have enough to meet our need after the harvest is completed? These people may be thinking, hey, this great harvest at Pentecost came, but now we're scattered. Is the rest of the harvest going to be completed? Will we endure? Will, will our little band of disciples, you know, be able to complete the task? Remember that James is writing to people who were the first fruits of the harvest begun at Pentecost, which is a harvest festival, and that harvest at Pentecost continues to this day, and that the triune God is working so that the great harvest of souls, when completed, the nations will gather around the throne of the Lamb, and they will worship the Lamb who was slain, but is now Lord and King for all eternity. And we, his people, will be there with him. And so in your trials, the multidimensional aspects of your trials and the doubts or the fears that you may have, what we bank on is the goodness of God whose wisdom pours out upon us. Faith grows as our I see Jesus who is the first fruit of our own resurrection and the work of the Holy Spirit completing the work of God in us. And even though we may be dispersed, even though great trials may come, just as these people, what, died and experienced there is life after death, and they died with hope, believing that God would complete the work, here we are 2,000 years later as evidence that the harvest is being completed. And when Kelly and Abby go to India, they get to see the harvest in India as Robert and Todd go to Hungary, they get to see the harvest in Hungary. And as Todd goes to Egypt, he gets to see the harvest in Egypt. And if you read missionary letters, which you should, and you read missionary work, which you should, you say the harvest is being completed until the day the Lord returns. Let your faith rest in that great hope. This is what James wants people to know who are suffering greatly for their faith. Family of God, don't be deceived about what's going on today. Don't misread the headlines. Don't misread the forces that are at work. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. It comes to us in grace through faith. And the same grace that saves is the same grace that will present us as a kind of first fruit of his creation. And that is incredibly important because we might then read on the rest of the chapter and we might think to ourselves, okay, God saved me, but now it looks like the rest of this stuff's up to me. I got to deal with my sin. I, I got to deal with my waywardness. I've got to do with my own, my own stuff. But James would say, don't be deceived. The way forward in obedience is paved with the same stones of grace that saved you. Now, now, let me just read the litany of sins the brothers and sisters are to consider. And as I go through them briefly here, think about the challenge inherent in overcoming these sins. Beginning with verse number 19. Do you not find it difficult to be 
quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger? Are you, have you, in verse 21, put aside all filthiness? Are you putting, you mortifying all that remains of wickedness? Are you consistently receiving with humility the implanted word? Are you proving yourself to be a doer and not just a hearer? Are you, verse 25, looking intently at the perfect law? Are you becoming an effectual doer or are you just a hearer? Do you, in verse 26, think yourself to be religious but you can't control your tongue? Your heart's actually deceived. Your religious claims are worthless. Are you consistently practicing, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God? That's quite a list, right? I mean, I'm just going to assume correctly that those issues are fully part of our fellowship. And we might grow discouraged or we might be prefer to be deceived and say, like, oh, everybody in our church is great. They don't do those things. Look around the room. Come on. That's not us. But if you find yourself, and you should find yourself in the litany of those sins, both sins of omission as well as sins of commission, I want you to also find the promise that James points us to. Lest, again, we think that, oh, it's up to me now. God did his part. Now I'm going to do my part. I want you to see that the same word of truth that saves you is the same word of truth that will deliver you from the power of sin. Verse 18, word of truth. Verse 21, implanted word that does what? End of verse 21, what does it do? It saves our souls. Come on, we can get excited about that, can't we? The word of truth, what does it do? <laughs> there you go. Beautiful. And then, verse 25, it shows up again, right? If we look intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, we will be blessed in what we do. The word, the word, the word. The means of grace poured out upon Christians facing trials and yet still struggle with sin, where do we find our hope? Can't save ourselves. Our hope is in God who has poured out the good gift of Christ, the gift appropriate to meet our need. And so this illustration in verse 27 is so helpful for us in our present day because it forces us to ask a question. Are we serious about living our faith in real life? In real life. And if I can just, you know, to beat the drum again, not the faith that we needed to live 20 years ago in still a somewhat moral and Christian America, or 40 years ago, or 50 years ago. So I told the group last Wednesday night if your faith hasn't developed to keep up with the times in which we live, you're lagging behind. You need to get to God and grace and mercy and let your faith grow because the faith has to meet the demand of the day in which we live. To be a church in real life doesn't mean to be a church in the life that was back there, but the life that is at present today, even the life as James describes it then. 
What is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and the Father? It is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. It sounds a lot like, you know, the uh, read between the lines of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This path of wisdom that James is writing that I've been preaching has been laid out for us by the God of wisdom. And as we face trials and tribulations, then our faith is meant to flourish because God in wisdom has given us the word of truth that we look intently into, that we trust in, that we grow in. And as we do that, we remember once again that God does not condemn us in our weakness. God does not condemn us in our struggle. God is inviting us here. He is inviting us to go deeper into his love. And as we go deeper into his love, we will find the joy that is promised. That's why in chapter 5, James says, confess your sins one to another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous person avails much. And then he finishes, as Mike preached in the first week, that when we turn a sinner from death, right? When we turn them from their sins, we save a soul from death. Do souls need to be saved out there? Yeah. Do souls need to be saved in here? Yeah. Are you going to be the church in real life? Or are you going to practice a religion that is worthless because you just hear the word, but you don't do the word? So in the name of the God of all mercy and grace, I invite, I encourage you to look to Jesus Christ this morning. To live out of your baptism, the life of Christ. To live out of his salvation in you, a life that comes with prayerful repentance over sins, that is being renewed with desires to have faith fully formed for the day in which we live. So, this morning, God has given us Jesus. The gift appropriate to meet your need. God has given us Jesus, the word of truth, the gift appropriate to meet our needs. Will we humbly receive him? I'm going to pause for prayer. I'll let you do some business before you and God, before I lead us in prayer. The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G.